Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books. Monticello is a dying city. For Amon Cole, that means a life in the gangs. For Jessica Branson, it's a dead-end career as a detective. But a pair of murderers revives both of their fortunes as the city drugs lords moves towards war. Inspired by the 87th Precinct and The Wire, Holland Bay by Jim Winter takes us into a world both familiar and new. Check out Holland Bay from Down and Out Books, available now. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. This is episode 9, Smith and the Insidious Dr. Fu Manchu. This episode is about protecting your territory. Smith and the Insidious Dr. Fu Manchu is an adaptation of the Insidious Fu Manchu by Sax Rahmer. Well, Jack, we've had a fun couple of weeks here, haven't we? Seems like we're both juggling everything, which is the excuse that I'm using for, you know, forgetting to write the first half of the show. (laughs) I will tell listeners that I think Dr. Fu Manchu is now my favorite bad guy ever. When I started reading the story, I mean, it's horribly dated. It is, it is pretty horribly racist, but Dr. Fu Manchu is freaking awesome. And I think one of the reasons I got into him was as you get into the reason why he's doing the things he's doing, you can really relate to him. I mean, here he is protecting not just his country, but the entire, you know, the entire Western civilization, Western or Eastern, I get that mixed up, the Orient against the um, influences of the British, which, you know, doesn't it seem like every, every place the British went, they pretty much subjugated people, made them, treated them like they were less than human, and took everything that was good about their country, you know, tobacco, gold, diamonds, whatever. So, I think he's a pretty cool bad guy. Well, that's all the intro we're going to do today. We're going to go right into our story. Jack doesn't have to reset his microphone or anything because he hasn't had to pull away from it. Just to remind people, the two main reasons that we're doing these this way, especially with these original stories, is that they date back to the early 1800s and 1900s, and the text really is a little bit difficult. But the style and length were meant for reading, not for listening. And so by doing adaptations, we get to keep the heart of the story while preserving the groundbreaking narrative. Character names are in the show notes, and we are now ready for Smith and the insidious Dr. Fu Manchu. Chapter 1, A Gentleman to See You. 
The day had been a good one. My patients were coming along well enough with no one in imminent danger of dying. It was one of those days that a man can... Who am I fooling? The day was twice as empty as it was full. The few patients I saw were more in need of attention than medical services. It was a drab way to make a living and left me with more time on my hands than was healthy for a man my age. After a simple dinner, I retired to my study to work on my true labor of love, my book. It wasn't coming along as I expected either. For all my knowledge on the subject, writing the words was akin to pulling teeth. My doorbell rang. My butler stepped into the library. A gentleman to see you. The clock chimed 10.30. Rather late for a social call, I said, anticipation pushing me to stand. Best show him in. One set of steps, footsteps went down the stairs. Two came up. Broad shoulders filled my doorway. The gentleman in question was somewhat rumpled as if he had slept in his clothes. Petrie, old man, grinned a darkly tanned version of the man I once knew. Bet you didn't expect to see me again. Nayland Smith. I looked him over as I came out from behind my desk. Is it you? I thought you were in Burma. I was, he said, dashing to my desk and snuffing out the lamp. Smith, what the devil? You think me insane, no doubt, he said. He was a shadow crossing the darkened room. The moonlight showed his profile as he stealthily peeked out of one of the front windows, and then the next. You won't think so when you hear my tale. They think I'm ahead of them for once. He returned to my desk, relit the lamp, and then fell into the chair. Though his pose was exhausted, his eyes were lit like stars. I went to the service tray, kept stock for the occasional visitor, and poured two whiskeys. That was quite an entrance, Smith. Here, you look like you can use this. Rye smile curled his lips. He raised the glass in a silent toast, and then saved the f and then savored the feel of my best whiskey going down his throat. Have you left the service? I asked of the man I had known to be stationed in what was now called Burma, but would be called Myanmar in a hundred years. Smith shook his head. My commission is a roving one. It goes with me. Burma, Egypt, India, London. You are the only one who knows I'm here, aside from the home office, of course. There was something in his voice, something stronger than intrigue, something more like a malevolent foreshadowing. What are you into, Smith? Have you ever seen anything like this? He shrugged out of his coat and began to roll up his shirt sleeve. A nasty but healed wound emerged. It was several inches long, but the skin surrounding it had been heavily damaged, as if it had been burnt. I had administered the remedy myself, so I knew what I was looking at. That wound has been cauterized, I said. He pulled his sleeve back in order. I was in the jungle, following a lead when I was bitten, not by one of the many deadly creatures native to the reason, but by something much nastier. The tip of an arrow had been dipped in the venom of a king cobra. I sank into my chair. Dear Lord, it's a wonder you aren't dead, Smith. Fast acting saved my life, he said. There's only one treatment. I was lucky to have the necessary tools with me to open it and cauterize the flesh before it moved into the bloodstream. My mouth hung open. I realized, you, you did that yourself? Fell into the devil of a fever, he said. I lay in my tent, malaria raging around me for three days. Incredible. You said it was an arrow? That means somebody, somebody tried to kill you. Indeed, it was the mad that I'm after. The one that has become my mission. He waved his hand toward my work in progress. Need content for your bestseller, Petrie? 
stories of mystery, intrigue, and thrills are selling, I can tell you one that will make your medical income look like a beggar's coins. Commissioner Nayland Smith had gray eyes that always tended to look cloudy. With his skin now as roasted as coffee, they look like a storm about to break over the coast. I doubt a story has you knocking on my door this time of night, I said. In a way it is, he said. I am in need, Petrie. I am in need of a companion and a bed. I haven't slept for the last 48 hours except in short 15-minute bits. I dare not close my eyes, but for long. I trust you as I trust no other. Of course you're welcome in my home, I said, signaling for my butler. A bath and a good night's rest and you'll be a new man. Before I accept your gracious offer, he said with complete seriousness, you should know who you are bringing into your house. Smith, I know who you are, I said, showing the confidence I felt for my friend. It was some years ago that we parted ways when you accepted the king's commission. He shook his head. Those years have changed me, my dear Dr. Petrie. No longer am I the ambitious civil servant doing his duty for king and country. I am a determined pursuit of one of the most sinister villains, a weapon that has been silently unleashed on Europe. I could only stare at Smith, my brain churning over his sudden appearance and incredible story. None of it fit into the humdrum life I lived. Smith leaned forward, those eyes of his deadly serious. Will you help me, Petrie? Swallowed hard as I nodded. Yes, you know I will. My butler appeared in the doorway, but Smith intervened before I could give him directions. There is no time to waste. He bounded to his feet and threw back the rest of his whiskey. We have to go now. Now, I said, it's, it's nearly 11.30. Really, Smith? A man's life is at stake, he said, cutting me off. I have to warn Sir Crichton Davy. Unless he follows my instruction immediately and to the letter, the undertakers may, be, may as well begin their work. <coughs> Sorry about that. I nodded to my butler. Our coats and our hats, I said. We should take a taxi, Smith said, following on my butler's coattails. We must press the advantage while we have it. Chapter 2. The Race to Save Davy. On the strength of Smith's urging and his purse, the taxi driver pressed through the crowded streets. Even at this time of night, London was far from asleep. Smith and I were silent as around us gruff voices jeered in time with the cab jerking suddenly from one side to the other. I can't speak to the reason for Smith's silence. For myself, I had some doubt that all of this was real. My life was predictable, simple. How could a man racing through the streets be the same as treated Lady Simpson's gout this morning? Smith rushed forward, starting me. What is this? A small crowd was gathered in front of a house. Constables dissuaded the curious who attempted to peer in the open front door. Smith thumped his fist against the roof of the cab. Here, he ordered, and jumped out before we had come to a stop. I followed, overpaid the man, and hurried after Smith. He cut through the crowd like a fish through the sea, stopping at the constable. What's happened here? Smith's voice bellowed like a man used to being obeyed. Sir Crichton Davy has died, the constable said. Hell and damnation! Smith spat as he hurried past the constable with me on his heels. Up the stairs and in the door, we found a man of authority speaking with a member of the household staff. The man raised an annoyed eyebrow as Smith strode across the checkerboard hallway. 
he led with a card. The man, who looked as though he would be at home in a boxing ring, took the card, then raised the other eyebrow to match. He touched his head as if there were a hat atop it. Inspector Weymouth, Scotland Yard. You know Sir Crichton, Commissioner Smith. My associate, Dr. Petrie. We were on our way to see him on an urgent matter, Smith said, answering Weymouth's unspoken question about my presence. Regrettably, I was too late. I noticed Smith absolved me from responsibility for Davy's death, taking it on his own shoulders. As we walked up the stairs with a thick rug and down a hallway lined with paintings and busts, there were quite a lot of weight on Smith's shoulders. The door to the library was open. Inside, a man laid on the floor, while another, one I recognized, knelt over him. Attending was Dr. Chalmers Cleve, a renowned and respected pathologist. Any conclusions, doctor? Weymouth asked as he led us into the room. Cleve rose with an air of discontentment. He was a cocaine addict, but the pathology is not consistent with overdose. I knelt and began examining the body. The bloating about his face and hands, I said. Never seen that in conjunction with cocaine. Agreed, Cleve said. The contortion also. Whatever he died of, it was painful. I stroked my fingers down the inside of the left arm. There was significant star scarring from his habit of choice. His right arm was free of marks. I turned the swollen hands, noting an unusual mark on his left. It was red and reminiscent of the marks left by a woman's painted lips. Is this a birthmark? I asked Cleves. He shook his head. Not according to Davy's secretary, Mr. Burboyne. He couldn't say when it appeared, but he was certain it was not there at luncheon. Cleve crossed to his bag, picking up his gloves. I will have to see what the post-mortem tells us, Wayman. At this point, my only conclusion is unnatural clauses. The wagon should be along shortly. Thank you, doctor. I look forward to your report. Weymouth waved in, in the direction of the constable that had just arrived. Mr. Burboyne, you are Sir Crichton's secretary? Yes, he said, his gaze magnetically drawn to the shell of his employer. For the last several years. Take us through this evening, Weymouth ordered. It is our custom to work for a few hours after dinner. Sir Crichton worked in his study and I here in the library. Burboyne indicated the connecting door. We began around 9, which is also usual. It was 10.30 when Sir Crichton threw open the door and staggered in. His face was red and swollen and his steps were lurching. He fell where he lays. I ran to him, having no idea what to do, but needing to help him. After considerable effort, he said, The Red Hand. I called for him, but it was clear he was beyond it all. 10.30, Smith whispered to me. We never had a chance. Weymouth looked up from his notes with a questioning expression. He didn't press Smith, but continued with Burboy. Is this the only door into the study? And was it closed until 9, or until Sir Davy opened it at 10.30? Burboyne closed his eyes, grounding himself. Yes, it's the only door. The door was closed except for a brief moment around 10.15. A messenger had arrived with an envelope. Sir Crichton accepted and reclosed the door. He opened it 15 minutes later and died. Chapter 3, The Study of the Study. In comparing the two rooms, the library and the study, 
Burboyne had the better part of the deal. The library was large and open and inviting. The study was small, closed, and private. It had thick carpeting and heavy drapes that were pulled closed. The windows beneath were locked and stayed that way, given the staleness of the air. The room was dedicated to Sir Crichton's work in the Indian territories. A large map filled one wall. Mementos and the like were dispersed across the mantel, tabletops, and amid the books on the shelves. There wasn't in this room a place to hide. There was no closet, no door to the outer hall, no trunk or armoire or anything capable of concealing a person. Smith found the courier's letter on the desk next to the blotting pad. It hasn't been opened. Nothing on the outside except Sir Crichton's name. He opened it, examined it, and then held it out to me. Smell. I crossed the room at the odd order. It's blank, I said, but when I reached for it, Smith pulled it away. A sweet, pungent aroma followed. It's been perfumed. A note from a lover, I asked. This is no man's lover, Smith said ominously. I have come across something like this before, but never in Europe. He began to search the desk, and so I returned to my inspection of Sir Crichton's collection. He had framed photos that documented his life as a traveler, a businessman, and a bachelor. It seemed he was a man with a great number of friends. I picked up a bronze vase, wondering about the story behind it. Put that down, Petrie! Startled, I did put it down, then turned on my friend. What's the meaning of this? Don't touch anything, he said. It could be dangerous. It was difficult not to rebut as Smith touched at will. Still, it was his game, not mine. I crossed to the connecting door and leaned against the doorway, watching as Smith made a thorough investigation. He examined the desk, including everything on it and under it. He did the same with the draperies, shaking them out as if he expected a snake to drop free. He spent an inordinate amount of time on the fireplace, given it was too warm to have need of it. I've done everything I can here, Petrie. Smith went into the library, joining Weymouth at the body. I strongly recommend Sir Crichton's body be removed and that the library be locked and kept that way until you hear from me, he said. Weymouth's jaw tipped. Consider it done, he said, which spoke volumes about my friend's position, that the Scotland Yard inspector would agree without asking a single question. You should speak to the groom, a man named Wills. He heard something you should know about. He's in the servant's parlor. Made off at once and found a cozy sitting room at the back of the house. Mr. Wills, Smith called out. A small weather man rose from a hardback chair and joined us. Smith introduced himself in a way that commanded honesty and truthfulness. I was locking the garage door, Wills said. I happened to look up at Sir Crichton's study and saw him jump out of his chair. When he sat at his desk, you could see a shadow on the blind. I saw him jump and the next minute I heard a call out in the lane. Of call. Describe it, Smith ordered. Wills had obviously been shaken by Sir Crichton's death and struggled to comply. A, a sort of wail, sir, he said in more of a question than an answer. Never heard anything like it, and I don't want to again. Like this? Oh. I was hard pressed to describe the sound that Smith made, but Wills visibly shuddered. That was it, he said, but much, much louder. As I suspected, said Smith, a note of triumph in his voice. Take us back to the house. The man bowed, and Wills led us. Wills led the way, and we shortly found ourselves in the small paved courtyard. It was a perfect summer's night, the sky overhead finally dark. 
The study windows are there. He pointed to the windows directly above us. Over that wall is the back lane. The cry came from there. Beyond that is Regent's Park. Who occupies the adjoining house? The stairs on the back of that house connect the main to the domestic quarters. True? They do, Wills replied. That is the home of Major General Platt Houston. He and his family are out of town. Send someone to make my business known to the Major General's housekeeper, Smith said. I want to examine those stairs now. Chapter 4, The Iron Stairs I was coming to accept that anything Smith said, from wish to order, would happen with nearly the same promptness as if it came from a duke. Shortly after stating his desire to inspect the staircase on the back of the adjoining home, we were standing at the front door, being introduced to the housekeeper. When she stepped back to allow entrance, Smith asked for a moment and took me aside. I want you to stay out here, Petrie. Patrol the square and keep a sharp eye out. Make note of anything unusual, no matter how small. Having given orders, he disappeared into the Major General's home. The crowd that gathered around the cessation of an unnatural death had disbanded. Weymouth had spread the story that Sir Crichton died of natural causes, which was, fire, which was water on the fire of the curious. Knowing the story was just that dominated my thoughts as I patrolled the square. How had Sir Crichton died? His body gave precious few clues. Did Commissioner Nayland Smith know more? Of course he did. What was the meaning of the blank but perfumed letter? Did the committed bachelor have a woman in his life? A touch on the shoulder jolted me from thought. Behind me stood a girl in a hooded opera cloak. The light silk billowed around her in the breeze. The moonlight reflected off the fly material. She stepped back, and I saw her face. Another jolt shocked me. She was by far the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. Her skin was fair and flawless, her eyes and hair dark as the night around us. In the shape of her eyes and the curve of a cheek was an exotic touch. My apologies, she said in a pretty accent. I did not mean to startle you. She laid a slim hand on my arm, jewels sparkled on her fingers. I bowed to her. It is I who should apologize. I was lost in my thoughts, I said. How can I help you? Her dark eyes were large and questioning. Is it true that Sir Crichton Davy has been murdered? I patted her head comfortingly. He has died, but murder was not the cause, I said, keeping with the public-facing story. But he is. She closed her eyes and moaned quietly swaying slightly. I hurried an arm around her. Easy, I said. Are you a friend of his? I'm fine, she said, steadying herself, but staying within the circle of my arm. Are you certain? Let me walk with you until you are steady. She looked up at me through those beautifully dark eyes. You say it was not murder, but I, I think I have some information for the police. Will you give it to, give it to whomever you think should see it? One hand disappeared beneath the cloak to reappear with a sealed envelope. We looked at each other for a long moment, neither speaking, neither moving. Then she dropped her chin and hurried off. Abruptly, she stopped and came back to me, her eyes on the ground between us. I would consider it a personal favor, one I would be grateful for. She lifted her chin, our eyes connected with the power of a lightning strike. Once you deliver the envelope, do not go near that person again tonight. This time when she left me, 
she ran. Too quickly, she was another shadow in the night. Somewhere nearby, a motor started. Behind me, a door slapped smartly against its frame. Smith, the most remarkable thing just happened. I recounted the tale, handing him the envelope. Smith's expression was grave, his eyes darting around the square. He opened the envelope, examined it, and handed it to me. She was a big card to play, he said. The single sheet of paper was blank, yet it was perfumed with the same scent as the one in Sir Crichton's study. What does it mean? For God's sake, Smith, stop leaving me in the dark. I will, old friend, as soon as we are safe, he said. We need a taxi. I was no longer in the mood to humor him, insisting he talked as we walked. What came at the iron stairs, I asked. It was the work of a moment, he said, to use it to gain access to Sir Crichton's roof. I found this lying against the chimney something from his pocket and deposited it in my hand. It's a ball of common string, I said. What are these knots for? We arrived at the corner where three cabs waited in the line. As we climbed into the front one, something zipped past my ear. It threaded the needle between me and Smith going over the cab. There was no gunshot, but there were also no insects in the night. In, Smith said with a shove. He barked an order to the cabbie and we were off. That was attempt number one, Petrie. Do not say anything until we are within your walls. The driver didn't notice him. That is the best thing that could have happened to him. I watched out the rear window as the door opened of the cab behind us. The driver pulled out of rank, following in our wheel tracks. Smith, someone just got into another cab. I think we're being followed. We're safe enough until we return home, he said, preparing a pipe. Then we will be in extreme danger. Extreme danger, I echoed. From whom? Damn you, Smith. If I'm going to continue playing this game with you, I must understand the rules. The rules, he repeated, sucking to light the pipe. The rules are simple. You win or you die. All right, Jack, we're already at the part where you get a chance to catch the killer. So it's a little earlier in the story than we usually do it, but once Smith starts talking, well, he's going to spill his guts. So then the story changes, as you saw, from a mystery to a thriller. So we're going to pause here. The question I have for you, my talented piano player, is how did Sir Crichton die? Perfume. <coughs> Excuse me, perfume. What did you say? Perfume. The perfume killed Deadly him? Deadly perfume. Yep. That's my guess. That's your guess? Indeed. I guess we don't really have a lot of other clues. Nope. I will say that the, the key to it is in the study. Okay. Well, I say perfume. Okay. <laughs> well, then we can move on to Chapter 5, A Genius of Epic Proportions. into the armchairs in my rooms, deep glasses of my strongest brandy between us. We were followed, I said, and we did nothing to dissuade their pursuit. There would be no point, Smith said resignedly. You call this a game? There are times when it feels like I'm in a chess mess against a grand master, nonetheless. My involvement in this affair began accidentally. In the course of my responsibilities in Burma, a situation arose that did not sit right with me. 
it was the death of an Englishman under suspicious circumstances. Many would have written it off to heat stroke, but to do so would have been to ignore facts. So I began to investigate. If I had known where the investigation would take me, would I have done it? He rubbed his face, looking weary for the first time. I don't know. I truly don't. But I suppose it doesn't matter. I have done what I have done. I crossed my leg and forced myself to be patient with him. Monsieur Jules Furneaux fell dead in a Paris opera house, Smith said. Why? Because of heart failure? No, Petrie. It was because his last speech had shown that he held the secrets to the northern regions of Vietnam. And what of the Grand Duke Stanislaus? Was it really suicide? I think not. He was an expert on Russia and Mongolia. He expounded on the opportunities they presented. And then, tonight, Sir Crichton Davy is murdered. Why? Because after a lifetime of work, he was the only Englishman who understood the importance of the Tibetan frontier. I uncrossed my leg and leaned forward. Three men are dead as part of a conspiracy? More than three, Petrie. Many more than three. He had succeeded in boggling my mind. But who is behind it, I said. What do they want? What they want is to take over all of the civilized Western world. While we go about our daily lives, paying social calls and worrying about which coat to wear to the opera, the masters of the Orient are amassing their strength. Their champion is a mastermind. He is without a doubt in equal measures, brilliant and evil educated in history and science of both East and West, with unlimited resources of a continent full of countries. Picture a man, tall and lean, feline in both his features and his movement. His hair is non-existent, shaped close to his skull, while his beard is long and comes to a thin point. His eyes are the thing of nightmares, a true cat green that glow when he is at his worst. Put it all together and you have our nemesis, Dr. I racked my memory for the distinctive name. Surely if what you said is true, it would have been in the papers. No, my good man, Smith said, cutting me off. My commission charges me with protecting British citizens, indeed all of Europe, from being touched by this evil. I rose and began to pace. Stay away from the windows, Petrie. Smith gave the warning without his usual bark of authority, which may have been worse. I changed my direction removing my person from between the light and my windows. It was all too fantastical to digest. A foreign power, a superpower, you might say, here on English soil. And yet I could not deny the oddities of Sir Crichton's death, the beautiful stranger with her perfume letter, or the bullet that nearly permanently separated me from Smith. Still, I stopped in front of Smith. How did Sir Crichton die? You know, don't you? He died of a Zayac's kiss. He sipped his brandy. Next you'll ask me what it is, and the truth is, I don't know. A Zayat is a traveler's rest house to Burma. There is a particular route where travelers who use the houses sometimes die in the same way Sir Crichton did. There is no wound, no pathology that explains the suddenness and permanence of the affliction. There is just a small mark, sometimes on the face, on the limb, or the neck. That mark is known as a Zayat's kiss. It was along this route that I met Dr. Fu Manchu face to face. Needless to say, travelers no longer use those houses. A Zayat's kiss, I repeated. Just
guess when I think the story can't become more remarkable, it does just that. What is the meaning of the perfumed papers? Do you know? Smith shrugged. I suspect. Along the route, there is a particular variety of orchid. Its perfume is particularly sweet and pungent. It is something that once you smell, you never forget. That is the scent on the pages. I have a theory and hope to prove it tonight. If I live, it will be one less weapon in the doctor's armory. If you live, I stammered, what do you think is going to happen? I believe a creature is responsible for the Zayat's kiss, and that creature is attracted to this particular scent. There are only two ways for anything to enter Sir Crichton's study, through the connecting door and down the chimney. Taken Burboyne at his word, nothing save the scented letter came in through the door, which leaves the chimney. My mind went through the creatures that could enter through a chimney. A cat, a bird, a spider, a fish. Not all were equally valid. But we found nothing in the room, I said. How did it get out? Same way it got in, Smith said. Remember the string I found on the roof with the strange array of knots and loops? I suspect the creature was lowered down, did the deed, and then was raised back up. Remember the wailing cry Wills heard just behind the house? I postulate that an accomplice witnessed Sir Crichton's shadow jump up, just as Wills had, signaling the bite had been delivered. The accomplice then signaled the man on the roof, and the killer was withdrawn. In their haste to make good on the escape, they dropped the line. They made a rare mistake, thinking no one would inspect the roof. As hard as it was to believe his hypothesis, the circumstances fit the facts. What comes next, I asked. His stormy eyes looked upon my own. Dr. Fu Manchu will try to kill me. Chapter 6. Dr. Fu Manchu Tries to Kill Smith We created our plan quickly but thoroughly. Both our lives depended upon it because as much, because as much of me wanted to do both of our lives depended upon it, because as much as a part of me wanted to run, I could not leave Smith to face the kiss alone. We began by washing all scent of the orchid from our persons with the strength of ammonia. We carefully removed our clothing and redressed in an untinted material. Next, we staged my bedroom. It was a large room at the rear of the house. Smith deemed it was easily accessible for a member of the Indian or Burmese gangs that Fu Manchu employed. We set up my camping bunk as a bed for Smith, then stuffed both beds with clothing and filler to simulate our prone bodies. Finally, we moved my round table into the center of the room. Next, we made a show of a final drink in the library before extinguishing the light. Now the entirety of the front of my home was dark. Only my bedroom was lit. Again, we made a show of moving about the room, readying for bed. We left the rear western window open, lowering the top of the window down. Our intent was to control our assailant's point of entry, enticing without giving too much of an advantage. Smith carried the open perfume letter with tongs for the fire and set it in the center of the table. Then we extinguished the lights and settled into our positions. Smith was against the wall in the shadow of my armoire, in a strong position to watch the open window. He was armed with a flashlight, a revolver, and a golf club. I was in a similar pose between the two closed south-facing windows, armed with my own revolver. 
The clock tower struck two. Bright moonlit light poured in unfiltered. A sharp square of dark light, of white light, illuminated the path from the window to the middle point of the table. Time stretched out as we sat in silence, feigning sleep for our would-be assassins. The clock struck 2.15. The ivy stirred, a soft rustling of leaves. The sharp line of the window's shadow began to bend, rising in an unnatural way. Inch by inch, something rose above the windowsill. From my vantage, I could only see the shadow on the floor, but I heard Smith inhale sharply and knew he could see the cause. The shadow stilled. I realized it was studying the room, scrutinizing our staging of it. This was the moment of truth. Either he bought it, or... The shadow suddenly lengthened. I couldn't help myself. I had to look. A lithe black form pressed against the window. One hand gripped the lower window, then the other. The body arranged itself within the window frame. One hand relinquished the window, becoming part of the inky shadow. Then it reappeared, holding something. The man made no sound until a soft click. Something dropped to the carpet, and the shadow dropped from the window. Do not move! Smith's voice was nearly frantic. If you value your life, do not move! He turned on his flashlight and lit up the table. There it was, frantic in its own way to get inside the envelope. It was an insect, a full six inches long with a vivid, enormous, deadly red color. It seemed similar to an ant with its long antenna, but its body was longer and head smaller. Most disturbing was the uncountable number of legs. While I cataloged the giant ant, Smith brought a golf club down on it. I leapt to the window, shoving up the windows and leaning out. A silky thread brushed my hand, and I swept my yard with my revolver. Our assassin was flying down the ivy-colored wall as swiftly as a sailor or a circus performer. He leapt into the shadow of the trees in my garden, never giving me a target. I turned back to the room and turned on the light. Nayland Smith had dropped bonelessly into a chair, an arm over his eyes. The creature had tested even his courage. It is done for tonight, he said tiredly. There is no point chasing him. It would only serve to expose ourselves. We will have to be satisfied with knowing the cause of the Zayat's kiss. People will be saved because of what we learn with this first brush with the enemy. I dropped onto my bed, not ready to relinquish my revolver. His loss is our gain, I said weakly. Smith removed his arm. In his gaze, I saw an unspoken question of my determination to see this through with him. I did not look away. So it is, he said, and it puts to rest the mystery of Sir Crichton's last words. Of course, I said. He said the red ant, not the red hand. Indeed, Smith said, but to think we failed to save him by less than an hour. We will have to be twice as vigilant thrice a sly if we're going to thwart the plans of the insidious Dr. Fu Manchu. All right, Jack. So it wasn't quite the perfume, but you were on the right track. Yeah. We have yet another one where the killer slash murder weapon is an animal. So let's talk about the logic and does it work. So if we go backwards, so Dr. Fu Manchu is trying to thwart 
uh, Sir Crichton Davy from talking about everything that he has discovered in Tibet. And he is going to do so by killing him using a monster-sized ant. I'm actually good with that. There, there's a good logic there. So he finds out what the guy's routine is. That's probably not that hard to do. And then he has two men approach the house. So at least one climbs to a roof and somehow harnesses up this centipede-like ant, lowers it down the chimney. This bug goes for this lilac, not lilac, orchid-scented <laughs> flower, and then bites Sir Crichton Davy. I'm actually pretty okay with that too. But then these guys like pull the critter back up the, back up the chimney. Okay, so when they put it into Smith's room, why doesn't it have a harness on it there? They like are just gonna leave it there? Do they plan to get it back? I really hate our dog right now. Does that bother you that they like had this elaborate scheme to retrieve the bug from Davy's office, but they just let it go into Smith's? Okay, well, slightly, but also, um, if Smith, if he thinks Smith's the only one in the house, why not let the bug in and then just go in and get it? They knew that. Well, he's got to know that oh Petrie's there, but maybe he wants the, the bug dog. to bite both of them. Jack's going to go fight our dog, who seems to be thinking that, I don't know, there's an Amazon delivery person or FedEx trying to break into our house. Either way, that's really the problem that I have with this. Um, I, I think the story itself is pretty cool. Um, we've had animals as killers before, and it always feels slightly like a cheat, because who's really going to say, you know, I think it's an exotic African ant or Tibetan ant or Indian whatever it is. But that's not the point. I don't like the inconsistency that that it seemed like they were trying to retrieve it from one place, not the other. Um, the rest of the book of the Dr. Sidious Fu Manchu is really a collection of, of similar type adventures where Fu Manchu is going after somebody and Smith and Petrie are chasing after trying to solve it. Trying to solve it and try to thwart it. Very cool stories. Um, excellent description of action said for today's times horribly horribly racist so if you do choose to read them either just ignore that part or keep it in mind at the time it was written but i again have to say that fu manchu is one of the coolest bad guys i've ever read so that wraps up this really noisy episode of mysteries to die for special shout out to our dog mia who felt like she really needed to be a part of this episode support our show by subscribing telling a mystery lover about us and giving us a five-star review Become a member of our Bowdy Bag Brigade by financially supporting the season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. Information is in the show notes and on our website, tgwolf.com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution from Jack Wolf. Smith and the Insidious Fu Manchu was written by T.G. Wolf, an adaptation from the Insidious Dr. Fu Manchu by Sax Rahmer. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by T.G. Wolf. We'll see you back here in two weeks. Thank you all. All right, Jack, take us out.
was about as messy as my reading was. <laughs> Sorry about that, everybody. I seem to be a little tongue-tied today. Good thing Jack's not finger-tied. 